Good morning. Uh, once again, it's my joy and privilege to be able to bring to you God's Word for study. Uh, this morning, we're going to discuss a time in the later stages of Jesus' Galilean ministry. We know that Galilee was where he had his headquarters, and Galilee was where he spent most of his time during his ministry. And so we're in the latter parts of that, and at this point in time, he wants to know, without a doubt, what his closest followers believe about him. He's been with these, these 12 now for almost two years. And after two years, he has performed untold miracles. He has fed 5,000 people. Again, later he feeds, we just talked about it last time, 4,000 people plus women and children. And so he has done quite a bit of spectacular things. And he needs to know, what do you guys really think about me at this point? He's been teaching many things, many truths, because although they didn't necessarily recognize it yet, Jesus intends to turn his entire ministry over to this group of fishermen and basically people who are untaught, untrained. It's as if Tom says, I'm going to retire and I'm turning it over to one of the janitors that doesn't have any teaching and training and skill. And that's what Jesus is doing. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' ministry will reach the very ends of the earth. He's going to start with 12 men, and from there the knowledge of Christ has spread, by today's standards, has spread to every nation on the planet. There are over 900 million Protestants and a combined total of 2.2 billion people who claim to believe in Jesus of some sort or type. Okay, But my point here is that followers have, of Christ have grown exponentially over the last 2,000 years. From 12 men to billions is an incredible increase. But you know, for every building that stands, it must be built on a solid foundation. And so this morning, that is what we'll see. Jesus is going to test his apostles to determine what their foundational beliefs are about him. And to begin with, we'll read of Jesus testing his twelve. Then he's going to move into a time of teaching them what to expect as a follower of the Son of Man. And lastly, we'll see Jesus give three of the twelve, he's going to give three of his apostles, definitive proof. They're going to see with their own eyes, hear with their own ears, that he is who he says he is. So let's start first with the testing. And let me set the scene here. 
we know from this gospel and from Matthew's gospel that this takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Let me show you where that's located. You'll see that the last time he was here in, near the Sea of Galilee, he was in Bethsaida, and that's where he healed a blind man. And from there, they moved upward north uh, into the area of Caesarea Philippi. This location is about 25 miles north of the village of Bethsaida. This area was associated with the worship of the Roman god Pan. And Herod the Great had erected a large, magnificent temple there in honor of the Roman emperor Augustus. And after Herod's death, his son Philip, known as Philip the Tetrarch, controlled this area, and he built a beautiful city in Caesar's honor. And Philip added his own name to the end of it so that it would distinguish it from the other Caesarea that we know of, which is out on the Mediterranean Sea. So you can see where both of the locations are. Now Jesus, as I said, has just fed over 4,000 people. He had healed a blind man in Bethsaida. And now he takes his 12 chosen ones and he heads north. And the primary reason to head north is to escape the crowds, to get away from the crowds and the Pharisees. Well, why does he need this private time with his closest disciples? Well, it's because he is going to spend this time revealing to them some very potentially shocking news. Now, as we've already studied, we know that Christ had already sent the twelve out in twos. He sent them out in pairs to do his work among the people in all the villages around Galilee. And he had even given them the power to exercise demons, the power to heal diseases, the power to correct disabilities. He had given them some of his own power to do that. And during that journey, the twelve had no doubt interacted with both Jews and Gentiles in the many different villages that they went to. Jesus knew that by this time there would have been much talk about him and who he was. So they're, they're truly enjoying being away from the chaotic crowds and the pesky Pharisees. It's kind of like being on a sabbatical where they just rest. But right in the middle of this sabbatical, this resting time, out of the blue, Jesus puts all joking aside, and he poses to them a very pointed question. Let's read on and see about this inter <coughs> interchange of conversation. First thing there is A, the people question and answer. And I'm just going to read just verse 27 and 28. Jesus went out 
We're, by the way, we're in Mark 8, if you're not already there, verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? Verse 28. They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. Okay. As they're traveling to this secluded place up north, Jesus is walking along the way with them, and he asks them a simple question. Who do the people say that I am? And they begin to answer. And we don't know exactly who is answering here. We can say all of them gave an answer, or it might just have been the one that usually talks for them, which is who? Peter. It could have been Peter. We're not sure because the scriptures don't reveal that information to us, but they begin to answer. And several of them probably did. But they answered with what people have mentioned to them. Now, all three synoptic gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them start off with the answer of John the Baptist. So, apparently, many people thought, that Jesus was John the Baptist. And then they mention Elijah. Matthew's gospel interjects the possibility of Jeremiah into the list. And then all of them end with somewhat of a generalization that he was just one of the prophets. Well, when you think of prophets, now we're talking Old Testament. And so they're thinking that he might have been uh, an Old Testament prophet. And the multitudes obviously believed that Jesus was very, something very special in Judaism. And he was, obviously. But these people were so far off from what their guesses were. Jesus was not getting the answer that he was desiring here. The people were saying that he was on par with some great men of their Jewish history, but as you well know, Jesus is so much more than that. In our world today, Jesus is compared to Buddha, he's compared to Confu uh, Confucius, he's compared to Muhammad, he's uh, said that he's a great teacher, that he had wise sayings. This is simply a mark of spiritual blindness. All of these names mentioned are mere men. Between Jesus and the names mentioned is a huge chasm. There's an order of magnitude of difference between these people. So what does it say that people believed? It says they believed he was a good man. And as I said before, he was a great teacher. He was a compassionate rabbi. He was a miracle worker. But not the answer Jesus wants all who follow him to believe about him. Jesus doesn't care if you and I think he was a great teacher. That's not what he wants us to believe about him. So he's not getting the answer that he wants when he asks about the people. 
So was Jesus concerned about that answer? No, not, not really. Jesus is not at all concerned with what the masses thought at this time. But he was very interested to know what his closest 12 thought of him. And so it continues on, and we see the personal question and answer. Mark 8, 29 and 30. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say? That I am. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Hamashiach. You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. Well, this is where I want to take us out of Mark for a minute. Mark has a tendency to kind of compress things, and shorten uh, situational descriptions. I want to take us over to Matthew. So if you will, turn over to Matthew 16. And we're going to read Matthew's account of this situation. As I believe it just has a little more of a dramatic emphasis. And it also records Jesus' response. So turn over to Matthew 16, and I'm going to start in verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. It reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, we're going to stop there. That is what Jesus wanted to hear. But Peter did not come to that conclusion by himself, did he? Jesus said with absolute certainty that his Father, God the Father, is the one that revealed that to Peter. Peter did not figure it out on his own, with his own intellect, which would be that flesh and blood phrase. And right here, folks, is a lesson for you and I that I want you to think about. When you and I came to Christ and realized that Jesus was our only hope for salvation, that He truly was who He said He was, that He was the Son of God, and He was the Redeemer of lost souls, neither you nor I nor anyone else who has come to that realization in all of human history has come to that on our own intelligence. God is the one that opened our hearts to believe that. It wasn't something that you and I were so smart that we figured out. 
So it takes a divine revelation to convince people's hearts that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, you can tell your children that Jesus is the Christ all their lives. And you can tell them, and you can read stories to them, and you can continue to teach them. But honestly, folks, you and I cannot save our children. It has to happen through a work of God in their hearts. The Lord has to open up their heart for them to see that and truly believe it in their heart. Now, back to our passage. Notice that Jesus does not refute Peter's statement. Instead, he confirms it. And then here back in Mark, he tells us those who heard that conversation to not tell anyone what they had heard. And you go, why not? Why, Jesus, would you not want the world to know about you? Why would you not want us to spread this knowledge? Jesus said, not yet. The time is not right. This is not the moment for you to do that. The whole of Jesus' earthly life and ministry was driven by a divine timetable. It was a timetable that was set before the world was. And he did not need his followers creating any more pitfalls and stumbling stones in the road to the cross than were already going to be there. Folks, you and I have the unique privilege of having 20-20 vision by having this book. But I want you to think about those poor guys. We're talking fishermen and... and and probably carpenters, and all kinds of uh, occupations that these men worked at. They were not learned men. These poor, ordinary men, they did not have this. They had the Old Testament part of it, but they didn't have what you and I have. And therefore, they're just overwhelmed with information. If you're walking along with a guy and he stops and heals somebody from blindness who had been blind from birth, your mind is trying to get wrapped around that. Later on, you've got some fish and some loaves and he turns it into a meal for 5,000 people. You're trying to figure out how could this possibly be. So these ordinary men are tasked with understanding who this man is and what he's capable of doing. And Jesus is just, it's like drinking from a fire hose. So much is coming at you that you're only getting just a sip here or there. You're not comprehending all of it. And Jesus is about to blow their minds even further when he tells them, about the cost to continue to follow him. And we read that in the teaching. As Jesus, and all, as Jesus often did <clears throat> after a time of testing, he took them to move into a teaching mode. 
Jesus had so much to teach his closest ones, and yet so little time. Do you realize he was with them for three years? I remember when Debbie and I moved because of a job transfer from North Carolina to Missouri, and I met the youth pastor there. His name's Chris Reiser. And, uh, I mean, at that time I was probably 40, something like that, and Chris was like 24. But this man had so much wisdom for his age, and I wanted some of that. And so I asked him to go to breakfast with me, and we did. We went to breakfast, and we ended up going to breakfast every Monday for seven years. And I would just pull out of him every Monday as much wisdom as I could. And I got this little much. And he is not Christ. Think about it. They're trying to understand what God in the flesh is telling them. And Jesus has three years to do that. And so it's time for him... It was in his perfect wisdom, Jesus decided it was time to reveal to his loved ones another part of the plan that's going to leave them in shock. So Jesus is going to pull back the veil of time. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there and know the future that's coming? And he's going to pull back that curtain of time and reveal to them the revelation. Mark 8, 31 reads, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Okay, I want to stop right there in the middle of that verse. This is the first of multiple times Jesus will tell his followers that he will not speak in parables right now. I'm telling you the absolute clear as I can make it truth. And I want you to think about for a second, I want you to zero in on this word must. In verse 31, he says to teach them that the Son of Man must. This is the same word that Jesus used when at age 12 he was in the temple and his mother and father can't find him and they come back and they find him and they ask him, where were you? And he said, did you not know I must be? In my father's house. This is the same word that he used with Nicodemus when he told him to enter heaven, he must be born again. Same word used when the scriptures tell us that Jesus must go through Samaria to meet the woman at the well. You see, it was a divine appointment. He had to go through there. He must do the Father's will because that's what the Father had set in that timetable. 
This word means that it was something written on Jesus' timeline before the beginning of time. It was God's decree, and it will, it must take place. It was immutable. It was not changeable. All these things must take place with the Son of Man, the suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection. And here he says that he must be persecuted to the max and die at the hand of ungodly people. And he ends it with the best part, the last part, where he talks about being raised again. But the disciples apparently did not hear that part. That ever happened to you? You're talking to somebody, and they say something, and all of a sudden you just quit listening. Let me show you something here. I'm sorry, I stopped listening to you when you said the Lord spoke to you. The, the disciples, they heard the word, be killed. And they quit listening. I mean, that's all they had. I mean, they, were, they didn't like the very first part where he's going to get rejected and he's going to be persecuted. They didn't like that part at all. And when it got to the be killed, they said, I, I, I'm done. I'm not listening anymore to this. This is just ridiculous. And just like, and just like most men, uh, we're not known for being good listeners. And there was one in particular in this group of 12 that was especially not known for listening real well. Who do you think that was? That's the same guy we've been talking about, Peter. You know, the silence must have been deafening when Christ spoke those words, they're probably just staring at him like, I, I, don't, I, I don't think I understood what you just said. The twelve were not expecting this. Why would they? Why would they be expecting it? They'd seen Jesus show incredible power over nature, disease, disabilities, and demons. And he'd even given them that power for a period of time. The crowds were growing. Jesus was at the pinnacle of his popularity. It says in John 6.15, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain, by himself alone. They were trying to make him king. So why would he say something so foolish as he's going to be persecuted, rejected, and killed? Things were good for the ministry. They were very good. But in the midst of the good, the disciples received that unexpected revelation, one that would rock their world, one that was just unthinkable. And that brings us to the rebuke. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Peter hears what he hears, and he goes right for his guns, and he comes out just blazing. Now, Mark only records that Peter was rebuking Jesus, but Matthew's account actually puts words in Peter's mouth. We read in Matthew 16, 22, that Peter said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. No, no, no way, it, no, no. Peter says, no, Lord. We're doing so well. Things are just beginning to brighten around here. Look at all the crowds of followers. Your miracles are helping so many. You're not going anywhere. I will not allow it to happen is what Peter is saying. Peter's using every ounce of emotion and persuasion and what little bit of wisdom that he has to rebuke the one. He's rebuking the one he just called God. How quickly Peter forgets who he's talking to. But Christ responds with a rebuke of his own. If you notice in verse 33, it says Jesus turns. He turns 180 degrees away from Peter. And he speaks to the 12 apostles. Because Jesus knows that if Peter is thinking this, and being the spokesperson that he normally was, then the other 12, the other 11, are thinking it as well. Peter was just that spokesperson for the group. He would say things that others were thinking but were afraid to say or didn't feel comfortable saying. And so Jesus tells all of them. He's got Peter behind him. He's looking at the 12, but he's talking to Peter and the, the excuse me, the 11. He's talking to all of them. And he tells them they're not thinking like, God, you just said I, who I was, and now you're saying these kind of things. You're thinking like mere men. Their wisdom and plans are not in alignment with God's plans. And folks, that's going to happen to you and I during our lifetime. Where we think things should go, they don't always go, do they? The way that we think a situation could, should develop and come to fruition doesn't always happen because we think like men and women, not like God. 
And that's what he's telling these people here. And with pointed intensity, Jesus addresses the one who has put these words in Peter's mouth, and he rebukes Satan severely. You know how these words must have cut deep into Peter and all those that heard it. It was a soul-crushing time for them. They had been so happy with how things were going, and now they hear this. And so Jesus moves into a teacher mode to teach them about the cost of discipleship. And he does it to his 12, and apparently there were some other disciples that were there as well, and he calls them. Jesus is kind of doling out these hard news, but he wants them to think realistically. He refuses to sugarcoat what their future entails. And he goes on to tell them what it's going to be like to truly follow him. He tells them to expect a cross when they were expecting a crown. You know, truth is often hard to swallow, isn't it? But they needed to know so they could prepare their hearts for what was to come. It's better to be prepared than to be sorry later. So Christ teaches them about the cost of following Him. The cost of following Him has scared many, many away throughout the decades and the centuries. Verse 36 always reminds me of Jim Elliott's famous quote where he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Following Christ is not for the timid, and I'm telling you and me as well, it's not for the thin-skinned, it's not for those who aren't serious about their faith, but let no one convince you that it's not worth it. It is very, very much worth it. It won't be easy, and in fact, here is where the men and women are separated from the boys and girls is Christianity. Jesus lays it out clearly to his closest followers that to follow him is not going to be a smooth and easy journey. Those that are his true, genuine followers will endure many trials for the sake of his name. They will all need to fall often to their knees to plead for his comfort and his care and courage and because of that fact many many will abandon the faith because they were truly not believers after all first john 2 19 that tom's been teaching us reads they went out from us but they were not really of us for if they had been of us they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Christian, I tell you that before you and I die, we're going to witness this type of going out more and more. I just read an article yesterday about how the numbers of people who claim to be Christians continues to drop. The next couple of generations in our country alone are headed down a path of purification as the Lord stretches out his hand to test our faith through the evil that's going to come at the hands of those who hate us 
and they hate us for what we stand for. It's not going to get any easier, folks. It's going to be a time of trials and tribulations. But I pray that everyone here and everyone in the hearing of my voice will be steadfast, resolute, immovable in our commitment to the gospel of Christ. All right, Jesus has stirred them up. Now let's look at the transfiguration. The disciples here are still reeling from Jesus' announcement of his impending trials when Jesus lays out one more declaration. And he's about to show three of his precious twelve something no man, no woman, no child has ever seen. Matthew's gospel records that Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is going to show him proof of that right here and right now. Let's look at it as they start to ascend the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 9, 1 through 2 reads this, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. Okay, there has been an incredible amount of ink spilt over these couple of verses uh, by commentators. First, it says, who was Jesus speaking to? It says they were speaking to them. And secondly, what does it mean by until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power? Well, pretty much all commentators agree that <clears throat> who, they, uh, who Jesus is speaking to is to the twelve. Okay, at that time. And he's giving them kind of a teaser of what's about to happen. As to the other question, uh, the kingdom of God statement, is all, it's much more complicated. In fact, I, I don't think I read, I probably read 15 or so different commentaries about this. And there, there's only a few of them that really agree. There's five options here what they're talking about being revealed. The first one is the transfiguration. The second one is Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. The third one is the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. The fourth one is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And then the fifth one is Jesus' second coming. Well, when... By merely making the statement, there's some of those who are standing here who will not see death until this happens. We can eliminate multiples of those. Okay, we know that James, uh, the, the three, Peter, James, and John, we know that James was the first to be martyred. Uh, 
he would have not seen the destruction of Jerusalem. He would have obviously would not have seen Jesus' second coming. So I simply don't have time to eliminate one by one all of the ones that are believed to not be the answer here. So suffice it to say that most all of the biblical scholars agree that the event that is really being spoken of here is the transfiguration. All right, and that's where we're going to go with it. So let's look at the actions on the mount. <clears throat> Mark 9, verse 2 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Verse 7, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Verse 8, All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Okay, the mount is believed to be Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon stands at about 9,000 feet in elevation. Some have suggested that this took place at Mount Tabor, but it's down here below the Sea of Galilee, and so the likelihood of that has been pretty much washed away. It, it's only at about 2,000 feet, and they don't consider it a mountain. They really consider it more like a hill. And while on the mountain, four different things happen. The first one is Jesus is transfigured into his glorified state. Secondly, Jesus is joined by Moses and Elijah, who, by the way, they represent the law and the prophets. Third, Peter offers to build a tabernacle for each of them. And fourth, God the Father makes a surprise cameo appearance and speaks to the three apostles to confirm to them who Jesus truly is. So what's the purpose of this event? How many of you have ever watched the show Undercover Boss? Have you seen that? Sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's sad. You know, these guys get dressed up in a costume. They go work with the frontline workers. They find out how things are going on. Sometimes they're not going very well at all. In fact, I saw one part of an episode where this person got fired because they were such a bad manager. But eventually, they come out of costume, and they reveal who they really are. Well, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's uh, kind of like Undercover Boss Divine Edition. Jesus puts on the ultimate defense of his <clears throat> identity. Jesus wanted to reveal to those three fishermen, all three of them are fishermen, 
who he truly was, and he brings in God as his witness. He shows Peter, James, and John a glimpse of himself in his glorified heavenly state. It talks about no launderer could have made his garments any whiter. It was, I'm, I would only imagine it was so bright that the, the uh, Peter, James, and John could not really see for a long time afterwards. He shows them some of his heavenly disciples, who they were, Moses and Elijah. And folks, we cannot equate Moses and Elijah with Jesus. They're not on the same plane. Remember that. Jesus is still above them. But he shows them his heavenly disciples. And then if that was not enough to convince them that he was the Son of God, then God the Father steps in and he removes all doubt. There are a couple of things I want you to note here, though. First, when Jesus transfigures, the disciples just about faint with fright. They were terrified. And, of course, guess who? Peter uh, kind of fills the awkward silence. Have you ever had that? Does that bother you? Uh, you know, you're talking, people are talking, all of a sudden it gets real quiet. And you go, ah, this is awkward. i I, I got to say something because I just can't stand the silence. Well, guess who speaks up? Peter does. And Peter says, it, it, it's good for us to be here. Uh, you think so? Duh. You know, you got to love Peter. No humans had ever witnessed such an event where two of the greatest Old Testament saints meet their Savior and they talk about his departing from the earth after his resurrection. You know, it's just an incredible setting. Secondly, then to hear the voice of God the Father confirm Jesus' identity should be enough to satisfy anyone's unbelief. It's just unbelievable. It's one of the greatest moments in human history has just happened and Peter, James, and John are eyewitnesses to it. Just, just thinking about it gives me shivers. All right, so what happens after the mount? As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. And the Son of Man, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement. Now they hear that statement. Remember, he's already said it once, and they didn't catch it. But they seize upon it here. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They ask him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first, first, does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you 
that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it was written of him. Okay, the transfiguration is the high point of Jesus' earthly ministry. From now on, there's only one path for Jesus, and it's headed to the cross. And so as they come down from the mount, Jesus commands them not to tell anyone what they saw until after he rises from the dead. Second time in one day that Jesus made a statement about his, his resurrection, and they now finally hear it, and they begin to contemplate what that means. And I'm sure they were saying, is this a parable again? Or is this plain matter talk that he's referring to? And then they realize that Elijah had just appeared, so now they have a question. Now they're trying to figure out the chronology of the end times as to what's going to take place. And so they ask Jesus a question. And Jesus answers that first question in the second half of our passage here. But he also interjects another statement here when he says, And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What he's trying to get them to see is that his statement of being mistreated, rejected, and killed was all in the Old Testament, and they didn't catch that part. But he wants to answer their question about Elijah, and so he does. And he says, Elijah has come first. But he's referring to John the Baptist as a type of Elijah. These three fishermen, they're so confused. And folks, I have a lot of sympathy for them. It's trying to explain uh, electrical engineering to a three-year-old. I mean, they... they can only understand so much. And these poor guys are trying to soak it all in. Okay, we've read of the testing, the teaching, and the transformation. Let's talk about the application. <laughs> what things do you believe in? Think about that for a minute. What things do you really really believe in. You know, I believe with all my heart that my wife loves me. Why else would she stay with me for 50 years? I'm not rich, I'm not handsome, I'm not talented in any sort of way. And at this stage of life, I've even contracted an illness. It's called UFO. It stands for ugly, fat, and old. But with all of my being, I believe that she loves me. And she will to the end. And I believe that with my heart, soul, mind, and body, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He is the Christ. I believe He's my Lord. I believe He's my Sovereign. I believe He's my Savior. The question is, what do you believe about Him? Jesus would pose that question to many during his earthly ministry. And next week, when Edwin teaches, he'll cover Jesus healing a man's son from a demon. 
And that man who says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus will respond with, if you can, of course I can. But the man did not know that because he didn't believe. In fact, he's going to say, help my unbelief. All things are possible to him who believes. One of the most famous interchanges of unbelief is recorded in John's Gospel. This is a recording of Lazarus' death and resurrection. Turn with me there to John 11. John 11, we'll start in verse 21. This is uh, Lazarus' death and Martha has come to Jesus. Martha then says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then he poses this question to Martha, Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now skip down to verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God. And then he calls Lazarus forth. This morning, Jesus asked his disciples to declare their beliefs. As we enter this precious season of Christmas where our Savior is born, I want each of you and me as well to search our hearts and our souls and determine with certainty what you believe what do you truly believe about Jesus folks what you believe determines how you act it all boils down to a single and sobering question that each and every one of us needs to answer in our hearts and that question is who do you say Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And thank you for your word that just convicts our heart so strongly and forces us to ask ourselves hard questions. And then today, as we feel that question weighing on our heart, I pray that everyone in this room will respond, You are the Christ the Son of the living God.
And I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.